Hello and welcome to our weekly message. In today's message, Pastor Myron continues our sermon series called Journey to Easter. This week's message is titled The Trial from Mark chapter 14 verses 55 to 65 and Mark chapter 15 verses 1 through 15. In the history of jurisprudence, sadly, there have been many, many examples of gross miscarriages of justice. And in this regard, one of the most infamous unfolded about 125 years ago and it involved a guy by the name of Alfred Dreyfus. Alfred Dreyfus, that gentleman, he was a captain in the French army when in 1894 he was charged with sharing state secrets with the enemy. Following the charge, the captain was tried, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to hard time at the Devil's Island Penal Colony, half a world away from France, little island just off the coast of French Guiana in South America. Just two years later, though, evidence came to light that demonstrated that Captain Dreyfus was completely innocent and that another soldier was, in fact, guilty of sharing the state secrets but Captain Dreyfus's superiors nevertheless buried that new evidence for three more years to 1899. It would take seven more years until the captain was actually freed from his incarceration on that penal colony half a world away. And then in time, some of what was going on beneath the surface came to light. See, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, he was a French national, but he was of Jewish ethnicity. And he had some, period, had some superior officers who were rank in terms of their anti-Semitism. And so they had chosen that particular aspect of the captain as an opportunity to essentially try to ruin his life. It makes me think of another Jewish man who himself was subject to a gross miscarriage of justice. That Jewish man was our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning as we continue on our journey to Easter teaching series, we're going to focus on Jesus' trial. And to do that, I invite you to take your Bible or find on your device Mark chapters 14 and 15. We're going to pick up some verses in both. Mark 14 and Mark chapter 15. Jesus' trial was actually two trials. He had a religious trial, and he had a civil trial. For each of those two trials, there were three specific aspects then. And so Jesus, first of all, was taken before, in the religious trial, a man by the name of Annas. He was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Annas was an, Annas was an old and evil man. He was in charge of the lucrative merchant selling and trade industry that was associated in that era with the temple. Following Jesus' appearance before Annas, Jesus then secondly in the religious trial did appear before the high priest Caiaphas, and then thirdly, he appeared before the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. That group, the Sanhedrin, they had the ability to press charges and to have a trial and to even pass a sentence, but they did not have the authority, they were not empowered to carry out sentence. Following the religious trial, then our Lord Jesus had a civil trial, and he appeared before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and then before King Herod, and then again before Pilate. In all of it, the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ was marked by numerous illegalities. For example, think about the place of Jesus' trial. The Sanhedrin 
according to their rules, according to Jewish law, was to try cases in the Hall of Stones in the temple. Instead, Jesus was tried at the homes of both Annas and Caiaphas. That was in breach of their own rules. Then there was sort of the time period involved. Trials were not supposed to happen at night, but Jesus was tried at night. Not only that, there were the people involved. So our Lord Jesus, during his trial, had numerous witnesses come to testify against him, but they couldn't agree in their testimony. And in order to have a conviction, you had to actually have the witnesses agree. Meanwhile, no witnesses were permitted to testify on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, when the sentence against the accused was death, the Sanhedrin was supposed to take a 24-hour period, an entire day, to step back and see if there was any way in which mercy could be extended to the accused, to the convicted. But we know that instead, Jesus was rushed right through to the execution. In so many ways, and those are just a few examples, the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ was a mockery, a travesty of justice. But in all of it, as we study our way through these verses of Scripture, I think you'll agree with me in the end that our Lord Jesus Christ was indeed guilty. As an old gospel song puts it, as our Lord Jesus went through his trials as recorded in Mark chapters 14 and 15, it is so obvious that Jesus was guilty of love in the first degree. With that, let's look at Mark chapter 14 and Jesus before the Jewish authorities. Pick it up with verse 55, where we see Jesus was accused. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. We get what's going on here, right? The religious authorities in Jesus' day had arrived at a conclusion. We want to put to death that troublemaker from Nazareth. We've had enough of this guy. Now we need to line up the narrative. So let's work backwards from the outcome that we want. Verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Try as the religious leaders did to try and arrange a narrative accusations that would achieve their end result of seeing Jesus of Nazareth put to death, they weren't having much luck. And then finally, some witnesses came forward to say, hey, we heard this guy say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it three days later. Of course, it was a terrible take. An awful spin on a statement that Jesus had actually made. When he made that statement, he wasn't talking about a temple made of stones and wood. He was talking about himself. His death on the cross and his glorious resurrection three days later. Nevertheless, this is the charge that was brought before our Lord Jesus. So Jesus was accused. Now in the next block of verses, verses 60 to 64, Jesus was arraigned. Then the high priest, this is Caiaphas, stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer what is, this, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. 
and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. So there was our Lord Jesus brought before the high priest, before Caiaphas. And in John's gospel, he begins with Jesus before Annas. Mark jumps right into Jesus appearing before Caiaphas. And the high priest says to the Lord Jesus, what are you going to say in response to these accusations, these charges? And Jesus was silent. But then Matthew tells us that Caiaphas placed Jesus under oath. In other words, according to Jewish law, he was legally obligated to answer. And in response to the question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. You know what that two-word statement resulted in? Heads exploding in the council in that very moment. Why? Because our Lord Jesus was equating himself with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am. And then Jesus went on to say, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was an unequivocal declaration of our Lord Jesus, of his deity, that he was God of very God. And in response, those in the council said, what more do we need to hear? He's guilty of blasphemy. He must die. Of course, our Lord Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy. This is who he is. He is King and Lord, the sovereign over everything that is, the head of the church, and he is mighty to save. In verse 65, then, we see that Jesus was abused. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. Imagine that foul-smelling, disgusting spit dripping down the face of Almighty God in the person of our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate. And then they blindfolded him and they slapped him around and had some fun with him. This supposed rabbi from Nazareth Prophesy, who cuffed you that one? Who hit you this time? I want us to come back, though, to those individuals that were brought as witnesses to testify against the Lord Jesus Christ. The ones that couldn't get the story together. And then the, finally, uh, the testimony that they settled on, the religious leaders, that is, which was that you know, he promised to tear down the temple and rebuild it three days later without human hands. If the Jewish leaders had tried, and of course they didn't, there were many, many people who could have testified to who Jesus was and what he could do, right? I mean, there are blind people that could now see. There were people who previously were paralyzed and couldn't walk, but they were walking around. There were people who had been demonized but had been set free. There was even a dead guy out there named Lazarus who had come out of the grave and was walking around. I mean, there were lots of people out there who could have testified to the Lord Jesus who he is and what he does to those who place their hope in him. But of course, this was not the leadership's intent. Around the year 8160, there was a guy by the name, <coughs> excuse me, of Polycarp. <coughs> and there's Polycarp in Mosaic Tile. He was the bishop of Smyrna, which is close to the city of Izmir in western Turkey. And he was likely one of the last 
people to know personally and sit under the ministry of the Apostle John. He's a faithful, faithful proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. But one day, around AD 60, during a period of state-sponsored persecution, the police came to Polycarp's home to arrest him. And because it was later in the day, Polycarp prepared a meal for the guys, and he prayed for them, and they were quite genuinely overwhelmed by his Christ-like courage and faith and kindness, but they had a job to do. So they arrested Polycarp, and they took him before the Roman proconsul, who looked at this old man and said, seriously, can you just curse Christ, and we'll call it a day, and everybody can go home? I mean, cross your fingers behind your back if you need to, but let's just handle this and get on with it. And this is what Polycarp said in response. Eighty-six years I've served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And as he went to his death as a martyr for the Lord Jesus, he prayed this prayer. Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the martyrs. I find stories like that so challenging and so inspiring. There was a follower of Jesus who in his moment bore witness, testified to the greatness of our King, the Lord Jesus, and who he is and what Jesus does for all those who place their trust in him. Friends, in these days of Advent, in the days that are ahead of us this week, how will you and I, in what circumstances and before whom, will we bear testimony to the Lord Jesus and what he has done, prayers he's answered, forgiveness that he has extended to us, Peace that he has poured over our hearts and lives, direction and wisdom and hope and encouragement that he's given to us. How will we testify in the days that are before us in Advent to who Jesus is and what he will do to all who seek him and place their trust in him? Well, that was Jesus before the Jewish authorities. Now in Mark 15 and the first 15 verses, we have Jesus before the Gentile authorities. Verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans, so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Interestingly, that word handed away, handed him over, literally means betrayed. So the religious leadership betrayed, handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, but they had a problem at this point. The religious aspect of Jesus' trial hadn't exactly gone smoothly, but Now they had an even more difficult challenge. And that's because Jesus had been charged with blasphemy. And he was sentenced to death. But that was not going to work for the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So they had to come up with something else. And according to Luke 23, they now had that original charge morph into three accusations. That Jesus was going to be guilty of insurrection against the Roman government. That he opposed paying taxes to Caesar And that thirdly, he was setting himself up as a king in sort of a challenge to the leadership of Caesar. (coughs) And so it was with these charges now that Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate. Verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. At this point, as one commentator notes it, the trial not before Pilate, 
but the trial of Pilate actually began. Because as this scripture unfolds, it's evident that Pilate knew there was an innocent man standing before him. But Pilate was kind of a coward. He was a politician who held his finger to the wind. He didn't want any trouble. And he really wanted to try and mollify these angry Jewish leaders. So what to do? Well, in verses 3 to 5, as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, on that day in history, we see, first of all, Jesus' silence. Verse 3. The chief priests accused him, Jesus, of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. There was Jesus' silence. As the Jewish leadership hurled all kinds of accusations against him, Jesus was totally silent. Going all the way back to the ninth century and the land of Egypt, well, there's a phrase that's common in our English language as an idiom. And the phrase is this, silence is golden. In the case of our Lord Jesus, that silence wasn't just golden, it was glorious. More than that, it was authoritative. Throughout his trial, at points, the Lord Jesus spoke. One to have been silent would have helped his cause. On other occasions, he was silent when to simply have spoken a word would have been beneficial. The Jewish leadership had so botched this trial that all Jesus had to do was utter a word or two, an appropriate statement at just the right moment, and he would be out of the terrible predicament he was in. But he didn't do that. Instead, he was silent. You know what that tells us? That throughout this trial, our Lord Jesus was totally in control of the situation. We see Jesus' silence, and we see Jesus' substitution. Verse 6. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas. The name means son of a rabbi. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So there was Pilate in a serious predicament. He wanted to try and mollify the Jewish leadership before him, but on the other hand, he knew that he had an innocent person before him. He was absolutely convinced of that. But at this time of the year during the Passover, it's customary, as a gesture of goodwill on the part of the Roman occupiers, that they would set free a Jewish prisoner. So Pilate thought this was his perfect opportunity to get out of this really tricky situation. And he went before the crowd and he said, you know that it's the time of the year where I set someone free. Why not Jesus of Nazareth? The Jewish leadership had stirred up the crowd, writes the Gospel writer Mark. The word stirred up is related to the word earthquake. Can you imagine the intensity, the anger, the mob scene that was characteristic there in that moment? 
instead of seeing Jesus released, they said, give us Barabbas, a convicted murderer. As for Jesus, let's have him crucified. Can you imagine that day in Barabbas' life? There he was in prison, a convicted murderer. And I bet every moment that passed by, a little more dread gripped his heart. Because he knew that the hour, the moment of his crucifixion, his capital punishment for his crime that it was close at hand. And then he heard the soldiers coming down the hallway in the prison. Then he heard the key go into the lock, and then the door opened. And what did the soldiers say to him? Barabbas, there's a man named Jesus. He's going to die in your place, and you're now free to go home. In this profound aspect of the trial of our Lord Jesus, we see Jesus' substitution. This is a powerful teaching, a powerful doctrine of the Word of God, that our Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary willingly became our substitute. Now, identity theft is a terrible thing. That kind of fraudulent activity is all too common in our world. I've had really weird charges show up at different points on my credit card. Charges, for example, at a gas station in Toronto when I knew full well I was in Calgary in those days. So those kinds of things happen. Last year, there were 56,000 incidents of identity theft in our country. It was a total of $92 million worth of losses to the victims. But in an awesome way, in a merciful way, in a loving way, didn't our Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary sort of practice an identity theft? I mean, with unimaginable love and mercy. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus assumed the identity of Barabbas. He assumed my identity. He assumed your identity. And he took over our account, the account of our sin. But not to mess with it as a thief would. Instead, he took over the account of our sin as the perfect son of God, as our perfect substitute, to as a gracious and merciful friend, pay our debt. The moment that we say yes to Jesus, confessing our sins and ask him to be our only Savior and Lord, all that he purchased for us by his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, his once-for-all sacrifice becomes real and transformational in our lives because on the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. And finally, we see Jesus' sufferings. Verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Again, wishing more to try and mollify the anger of the group that was before him, wanting that more than doing the right thing. Pilate waved the white flag. He gave in. He gave Jesus to be flogged. Most prisoners in that era didn't survive a Roman flogging. It was so severe, it was so brutal, that by the end of a Roman flogging, 
most prisoners had internal organs exposed and they didn't actually live to get crucified. But Jesus experienced that first. And then, of course, nails were driven through his hands and his feet. And this he embraced willingly in love to be the once for all perfect sacrifice for you and for me. So as we reflect on the trial of the Lord Jesus, how do we see it? What's our verdict of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf? The 18th century hymn writer Charles Wesley, he proclaimed these words, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Friends, let's allow that to grip our hearts. Thank you for joining us for our weekly message. Today we looked at the trial of Jesus. Jesus was tried by both the Jewish and Gentile authorities and found guilty. Jesus chose to come to earth to pay a price that we could not pay. Jesus' guilt was founded in his love for you and for me, allowing us to experience the life that God intended for us all along, a life in relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today as we reflect on these verses and the trial of Jesus, let us be reminded of the love that drove him to the cross. As Charles Wesley says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now these words from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of Jesus Christ, every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. May God bless you as you go into the remainder of your day to be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus.